The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Prescription for Success with your host, Dr. Emil Haldi. Each week, we come through the myths and facts about health and wellness in order to bring you the best advice and the right information that you need to live an incredible life. Now, here is Dr. Emil Haldi. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Prescription for Success. This is your host, Emil Haldi. Cancer is a word that is scary to many people. We all know someone directly or indirectly who was impacted by this terrible disease. This disease is personal to me. I have family members and friends who survived and those who did not survive. So this is deeply personal. More so, this show is dedicated to a dear friend that my wife and I recently lost to breast cancer. Victoria Bernstein was a brilliant nurse practitioner, a mother of two twin toddlers, a daughter and a wife. After an eight-year battle using every resource available in conventional and non-conventional medicine, she lost her battle. In her memory, we're having this life-saving discussion about prevention and treatment of cancer. Regardless of what your situation is, some of the things we'll discuss today will shock you as best-kept secrets. Other things you may already know. And maybe, just maybe, you just need a little nudge to do something to improve your health and vitality. When you hear cancer, there are multiple treatment options available to you. Then you get what's called a decision or option fatigue. There are so many options. People are already in the emotionally impacted state and decision, decisions become even more difficult. That's why today I have two brilliant guests that will talk to you about prevention and treatment of cancer. If for any reason you have to stop listening to this broadcast, don't worry. And of course, we don't want you to stop listening. You can go back anytime and listen to the podcasted version on voiceamerica.com. And we definitely want you to do that. And of course, tell your friends, families, relatives to listen to this life-saving show. My first guest is a very talented and passionate physician, Dr. Richard Salazzo. Dr. Salazzo is a board-certified physician in five specialties. Yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. Five specialties. Internal medicine hematology, geriatric medicine, oncology, and sports medicine. Dr. Salazar has recently published his book, Balance Your Health, which discusses combining conventional and natural medicine. Dr. Salazar has a TV program called Shock the World with Health and Goodness on Long Island's cable division, Channel 20. Welcome to the show, Dr. Salazar. What a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. We're going to have a great discussion today. Good. My next guest is a very accomplished and, and talented GI doctor that I'm privileged to see as my own physician. Dr. Jennifer Benur is a board-certified gastroenterologist. She is a clinical instructor at NYU School of Medicine and an attending gastroenterologist at both NYU Langone Medical Center and Lenox Hill Hospital. Dr. Benur has a special interest in women's health. She embraces the value of integrative medicine in the medical care of her patients. Dr. Benur has published regional research articles and has authored numerous publications. 
Welcome to the show, Dr. Banu. What a pleasure and an honor. It's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for having me. Of course, the same here. I am so excited about today's discussion. Although the topic is very heavy and very serious, the amount of good that we can do today is unbelievable. I am on a hunt for excellence. When I find people that are excellent at what they do, I bring them to the show to share their wisdom with the world. And I believe that you, Dr. Benur, and you, Dr. Salato, are global experts in your respective fields. So let's start. Let's start spreading this life-saving information. Dr. Salato, you're a man of many talents, and I'm impressed when I see a physician who is board certified in one specialty, but you are board certified in five or more. Can you briefly tell us about yourself? Yeah, it actually gets deeper than that. Um, first, I was a chiropractor and then a naturopath, and this is, I'm old, and it was many years ago. And for some reason, I was getting lots of cancer patients, and I tried uh, alternative medicine, all different modalities, Gerson method, Revisi method, uh, herbals, vitamins, supplements, fasting, you name it, we did it. And unfortunately, the results were not as good as I would have liked them. So then I went to med school, and med school did not accept any of my credits in anatomy, physiology, biochem. I had to take that all over again and devote more years. And then I did, you know, the typical, just like the other doc on the show, we had to do three years internal medicine. And I, I don't know if you did two or three years uh, GI. How many years did you get stuck with? <laughs> <laughs> I had three years. Three years. Right, so we had the yeah. similar thing. Then I had to do three years hemonc. And I, I thought I could combine straight medicine with alternative to get better results. Because I think both have good things within them, but you need to combine them for even better results. So it took a lot of years of my life. And... Uh, I think it made a difference uh, at connecting dots, cross-linking bodies of knowledge. For instance, the American Board of Anti-Aging Medicine is steeped into hormonal control, and that has helped my patients with um, hormonal attack for cancer. Because lots of cancers, they have no energy. And the reasons for that is the T3 syndrome, which can be missed. You could have a normal T4, normal TSH, but a low T3. And if you don't test for that, you don't pick it up and the patient suffers. And testosterone is quite huge when it's appropriate. Sometimes you can't use it in prostate cancer. But if a patient has cancer and they have low testosterone, you replace it, they feel much better and they can tolerate treatment. In fact, there's a book, Testosterone Against Cancer. So there's different, I, I picked up a lot of different strategies from the different subspecialties. It, it makes a difference. Um, and it, it helps the patient in a lot of ways. So you never, like I said to you earlier, you never graduate from the university of learning and we all keep trying to strive to be better to help these poor patients with this monster of a disease, cancer. Yes. Um, it's actually pretty amazing that you first were a chiropractor and naturopath. And I had a chiropractor on my previous show, uh, Dr. Peter Osborne, and uh, he talked about the chiropractic medicine being sort of the original version of functional medicine. So it's interesting how you, you transitioned and, and grew on your career ladder. It's very impressive. Right. So being diagnosed with cancer is, is very overwhelming to many patients. 
when given a chance to digest their diagnosis, many patients pick a non-traditional approach. And in many ways, those patients can be putting themselves at risk. Can you talk about that? What are some of the right decisions and wrong decisions that can be made, especially due to misinformation that's out there on the internet or through other sources that may not be as reputable? You want me to do it? Yes, please. All right. Well, there's a major, major mistake that cost people their lives, especially breast cancer, females. They, they, uh, they're found to have a stage zero, which is not measurable, a stage one or stage two. And they go on the internet or read books that tell them not to remove the tumor. And it is one of the biggest mistakes they could make. And in the book that I wrote, I addressed this, but I, I would love to address it more and more. And, and if I could have any good impact, any purpose would be on this subject. I have pictures in my phone, and I wonder if, if that would be picked up. The point is, the argument out there is, if you remove the tumor, you spread it. That is ridiculous. It, as we know, let's say you had a tumor the size of an eraser on a pencil. That's thousands of cancer cells. You leave that in the body, you're giving thousands of cancer cells an opportunity to seed the body. Now, I will admit that a needle biopsy isn't a good thing because you could spread it. Secondly, you're not removing the whole tumor. And according to the Hematology Oncology Manual from George Washington University Medical School, page 212, fourth edition. It says that you can miss up to 10% of cancers by trying to do a needle biopsy because the needle goes not where the cancer is, but somewhere else within that mass. Mm -hmm. It happened to a patient that lived in Staten Island. I'm not going to mention the hospital. I did a biopsy. They said it wasn't cancer. She came to me. It was in her spine. She's now not with us. So excisional biopsy is the way to go where you remove the tumor, the whole thing. So you don't miss the diagnosis, plus you remove the whole thing and you don't spread it. But the, the, the bottom line is the biggest mistake is not removing the tumor. You don't leave cancer in your body. You get it out of your body. And yes, you change the whole body's milieu so it doesn't come back. And that's where a lot of alternative medicine is with lifestyle. But that argument of leaving the tumor in has cost many women, especially, I say it again, especially with breast cancer. And they have a miserable death because the cancer grows through the breast. The surgeon can't remove it because the skin, they can't close it and they die. And it's painful and terrible. Mm. And remove the tumor. Try to get an excisional biopsy. Yes, I agree. Um, so again, it just takes a couple of cancer cells to go into a lymphatic channel, a neural sheath, or a blood vessel and seed the entire body. Blood, uh, breast cancer stage four at this point is not curable. Eventually it gets you. You, have, you can be cured with a stage one or two. And the irony of it is when you remove it, you might not need further surgery, radiation, or chemo if you catch it early enough. The surgeons have a saying, cut for cure. And to a degree, that is right. 
So you don't want to miss the window of opportunity. Look at this. Can you? Can they see that? So our listeners are not able to see, but if you are oh, list, watching are it we? on the YouTube channel, oh. it's going to be available as a video on the YouTube channel. So it, it does have a purpose if I show a shot, someone can it, see it? it? We will see it on the YouTube channel a little later. So uh, while, while you're looking for uh, that picture and you're about to show it to us, I want to stress it to our listeners that the biggest takeaway that Dr. Salatz is mentioning here, that if you have been diagnosed with stage one and two, uh, in any stage for that matter, probably, right? Is that what you're implying? You remove the tumor. Well, no, you, you know, if it's stage four, you might not remove it. That's another story. Can they see? Can anyone tell me if they see that breast? Our, our listeners and our I know, I know. viewers will see it? it. Can anyone see it? The yes, on YouTube. I can see it. Right. Not anymore. So that, yeah. Well, <laughs> I saw it. Yeah, and yeah, and get rid of it. And it was right? very unpleasant. Yeah. So here's another breast. That's pure mass with a giant hole in it, mm. and I, I can. It's terrible. It is terrible. It costs people their lives. So early removal of a low-stage tumor can save someone's life and a lot of aggravation and pain. That's something, you know, the earlier you catch a cancer, the more likely you survive. And so this is important. You mentioned, it, you mentioned this in your book, and uh, you actually have a uh, – you start your book with a story of a colleague – uh, that did not make it, but we'll come back to it in a couple of moments. And I want to make it clear to our listeners that if you've been diagnosed and if you have a tumor and you're really looking for alternatives, the biggest advice that Dr. Salazzo is giving us, if, you were rec- is, if your practitioner is recommending surgery, go for it and remove the cancer. Excisional biopsy, right. Excisional biopsy. Right, right. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Salazzo. Yeah. Dr. Banur, let me go to you. Uh, please tell our listeners about yourself. Uh, Well, I am a gastroenterologist uh, in New York City. I went to NYU undergrad, went to Stony Brook for my medical school, and did all of my training at Lenox Hill Hospital uh, here in the city. I I did my internal medicine there. I was a chief resident, and then I did gastroenterology for three years and have been in private practice ever since. Um, as a gastroenterologist, as you know, I know, you know, I do a lot of different things. Yes. Um, uh, it's, it's everything related to the digestive tract. Uh, with that said, probably one of my favorite and most important things that I do is that I help to screen for and prevent colon cancer. Yes. So what are the procedures that uh, many patients get diagnosed with cancer as far as which part of the GI tract is most common to get cancer in? So, you know, colon cancer, the, the, the colon is, is far and away the most common site uh, within the gastrointestinal tract for mm-hmm. us to find a cancer. Um, there is a close second in the stomach, and, you know, certainly you can find cancer in many of the other organs within the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, we have the esophagus, we have the liver, um, the small intestine, which is a bit more unusual but not impossible, the gallbladder, and certainly the pancreas. Um, you know, these are all organs that can be affected by cancer. But if you're looking statistically uh, for what is the most common place that we would find a malignancy within the GI tract, it's the colon, uh, which is the reason why we have standing screening uh, recommendations for colon cancer at this point for right. the general population. So let's elevate this discussion and give it some numbers. What are some of the statistics when it, re- when it relates to GI types of cancers? Okay. So with, you know, relative to other GI cancers or mm-hmm. just relative to cancers? Well, let's talk about a few most common GI cancers. Okay. 
So I pulled up some statistics for you. Um, colon cancer, just if we start with that, colon cancer, um, it's the third most commonly diagnosed cancer. Well, maybe the fourth. Lung cancer is still the most commonly diagnosed cancer that we see across all cancers. And then we have breast and prostate cancers, um, you know, female breast and, and prostate cancer in men. Um, but if you were to look at cancers that are gender nonspecific, colon cancer is the second most common cause of cancer that we see in the general population. Um, and it's the leading cause of cancer death um, uh, in men and women combined in the United States at this point. So um, the cancers, the American Cancer Society estimates that, I, I looked around and I found different estimates, but they estimate that within the year 2019, um, colorectal cancer, there should be 145,000 new cases uh, of colorectal cancer diagnosed this year. And that, that makes up 8.3% of all cancers that we diagnose uh, in, in, of all the different kinds of cancers that we find in the body. The estimated number of deaths uh, for this year would be 51,000. Um, it is, um, uh, you know, if we were to look at some of the other cancers and we can also look worldwide because it's not just a recommendation in the United States to screen for colorectal cancer. It's a recommendation within the industrialized world where they have access to colonoscopy mm -hmm. or other types of tests that we do to screen for, for colon cancer. Um, I, I think I had read about over a million new cases were reported in 2018 um, and over a half a million deaths attributed to colon cancer last year. Um, if we were to move to stomach cancer, which happens to also be a very prevalent cancer when you look globally, um, certainly more, uh, more prevalent in certain parts of the world, particularly in East Asia, um, which is something that we think about even in this country because we have patients that immigrate here from all over the world and we have to consider what their risk factors might be depending on you know, where they're from and what their exposures may have been um, prior to their moving here. But in 2018, um, there were also about a million cases of gastric cancer um, greater mortality associated with gastric cancer than there has been with colon cancer because we don't screen for it in the same way. Um, and there are probably some other reasons for that as well. We don't have screening guidelines for stomach cancer specifically in this country, apart from patients who are considered to be higher risk. Um, so I think globally there were over 700,000 deaths. Um, now you have to remember that's including the entire world where there is not equal access to medical care and the same availability of treatment, but it's still incredibly impressive when you think about, um, you know, what people are suffering with around the world with respect to cancer. Um, if we look at liver cancer, it's also very prevalent, also close to 800,000 cases with uh, very, um, you know, over six or 700,000 cancer-related deaths attributable to liver cancer. Um, esophageal cancer, unfortunately, is the sixth most common cause of cancer that we see in the world. That's on the rise. That, that seems to be a cancer that we're finding a little bit more often now. Um, there are probably some reasons for that as well. The problem is that when you, the detection is often uh, late with esophageal cancer and certainly with pancreatic cancer and even with liver cancer. And so when you detect these cancers at a later stage, they become much more difficult to treat and the mortality obviously goes up. Yes. So this is tremendous. I'm just going to quote some things that you mentioned, that colon is the leading cause of cancer death. 
So this is a, a really, really important. And you and I had a discussion a while back, and we talked about that your practice is a prevention practice for the most part, right? Because yes. you are detecting, uh, you, you're in an early detection business, so to say, that you're helping people detect early. And we want to encourage as many people to to go to their GI docs and get ex- get examined and get the procedure if necessary to make sure to, they detect. Second leading cause of death. I really think lung is Second. first. I could look it up, but I think lung still takes over yeah, in terms of, yeah, yeah, yeah. lung is, is, is really the first in terms of prevalence and also mortality. Yes. But colon's a very, it, colon's a, a good, a solid second if you take out breast and prostate. And in many skin, cases, preventable. Yeah. Skin is the very most often. common. Yeah, not. you have to exclude skin cancer on this one, <laughs> which is interesting because skin cancer is probably one of the only other cancers, and I tell this to my patients, um, where you have some ability to potentially prevent the cancer. There's yeah. very few cancers that what, when we're screening, you know, I, I did colonoscopies all day today. And when I explain colonoscopies to a patient and they say, you know, I have no symptoms of anything. I have, I have no abdominal pain. I have no change in bowel habits. I've not, I've never seen blood in my soul. There's no family history of colon cancer. Why am I here? And I explained to them that, you know, just statistically, there's very good reasons for them to be here. Um, but it's more than that. We act, it, it, besides just screening for colon cancer, which is what people associate a colonoscopy with, as they should, it's also a, it also gives us an opportunity to prevent colon cancer mm-hmm. by virtue of finding polyps and removing them before they have the opportunity to grow into a cancer. So by virtue of removing polyps, which I did many, many times today, we're preventing colon cancer. And we can't do that with so many of the other screening tests that we have, including for lung or breast or prostate. We can find early, which is still very, very valuable, yes. but we can't prevent. With skin, we can still prevent. And, and so there's some similarities there, but you have to exclude skin cancer um, from, from these statistics. I, I don't have those numbers, but if so you- it's very, very important what you're saying, whether, you know, we talk about being the second leading cause of that. This is huge. This is not even big. This is huge. And if we get people to go to the doctor and get screened. It's tremendous. Um, earlier before the program, we, t- we talked about the BRCA gene mutation. And the um, per- uh, Victoria Bernstein is the person that we're dedicating the show to. And she had BRCA mutation. So that put her at a higher risk of breast cancer, um, ovarian cancer, um, pancreatic cancer. Can we talk about that? And uh, um, let me ask you, Dr. Salazzo, can you touch on BRCA mutation and what you see in your patients and what the data tells us? Well, yeah, so BRCA mutation, the BRCA1, uh, the statistics that I remember is 65% more breast cancer, 39% more ovarian. I don't know the pancreatic, uh, the most recent percent. I don't know. Maybe the other doc, do you know? Um, pancreatic? I don't- BRCA. The statistics of, of BRCA, not specifically, no. I know how yeah. often we see pancreatic cancer. It's about 500,000 yeah. cases a year. Yeah. So, and BRCA2, 45% breast, 11 ovarian. And again, I don't know about the pancreatic, but right now I'm taking care of a lovely man, a scientist, a mathematician, stage four pancreatic, and he came out BRCA positive. And he's on the medicine, the PARP inhibitor, Mm-hmm. Uh, Linparza, Olaparinib, uh, and we're praying that that helps him. Um, so the BRCA gene uh, is a mutation that predisposes you to several different cancers. And I think another thing that to, you know, we don't have all the genes yet. Uh, there's lots of women that are not BRCA positive and they have breast cancer. 
And another interesting thing to think about with the BRCA gene. So again, if you have BRCA1, 65% breast, 39% ovarian. Well, what about the other uh, 35% that didn't get the breast cancer, but yet have the gene? And, and the other, uh, uh, what is it, 60, uh, uh, 51% or 61% that didn't get ovarian cancer. So we have to talk about epigenetics, how the environment impacts upon the gene, the two-hit theory, the three-hit theory. Right. So, you know, lifestyle and, and you being a GI doc, you know that diet is huge. Colon cancer now, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know. I listened to a Harvard lecture series on oncology recently, and he the the uh, the major plant based diet. Well, they were saying red meat does increase colon cancer, prostate cancer, and low vitamin D. Yeah, I've been reading about that too. But they keep talking yeah. about vitamin D. But I've read that not only with colon, I've I've heard that low vitamin D levels seem All to forms. also increase risk for breast cancer. Absolutely, yeah, and, leukemia. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So vitamin D is very anti-cancer. In fact, I, I've been into vitamin D for 30 years, and people thought I was crazy until about 2009. The American Journal of Medicine um, came out with a, a great article with 108 references on vitamin D. And it said, quotes, it, low D increases the risk of all forms of cancer. Yes. Vitamin D has the ability to control over 200 genes. So vitamin D is huge. However, of course, there's a caveat always. Too high. I have an article somewhere behind me, slight increase of pancreatic cancer. So What's too high? How high is too, too high? Well, that's a good question. And I think the article was saying like uh, the high 40s, you don't want to go there. Now, you know, and, and I question, it's a small window though. Yeah, it is. But I don't know about you, but I notice so many patients have low D. I, so it's, I, even, it's, I agree. I, I even question this 30 to a hundred. I don't know right. how real that is. You know, some labs will break it down. You know, if it's lower than 20, that's really bad, whatever. So I don't, you know, I try to put people into the thirties, low 40. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think too much, and in my book, I talk about this, too much can be as bad as too little. Mm-hmm. I agree with There's you. There's a balance. There's a balance. I agree with you. Yeah. So, uh, so this is very powerful. Uh, we're having such a powerful discussion. I believe it's going to help a lot of people out there be more and better informed about their decisions. We are approaching our break time, but we have an even, even a better discussion prepared for after the break. Uh, for our listeners, please give me a shout out on our social media and tell me what you like about our radio show today. We'll be right back after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Haldi Pharmaceutical Compounding is one of the nation's top compounding pharmacies. We work with medical professionals as well as consumers, both human and veterinary. If you're a patient or a doctor and need to consult us, please call us for a free consultation. Additionally, you may purchase carefully selected quality brand supplements and vitamins at discounted prices at hcompound.com. To schedule a personalized consultation with Dr. Haldi or one of our associates, please email us at wellness at hcompound.com or call us at 646-650-5040. You can also check us out at hcompound.com. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Prescription for Success. If you'd like to reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to wellness at hcompound.com. Now back to Prescription for Success. Welcome back to Prescription for Success. This is your host, Emil Haldi. Today, I have two phenomenal guests with me. Dr. Richard Salazzo is an oncologist and an integrative doctor. You can reach Dr. Salazzo via his website at richardsalazzomd.com. That's Richard, S-O-L-L-A-Z-O-M-D.com. We also have Dr. Jennifer Benur, a board-certified gastroenterologist, and you could reach Dr. Benur via her website at benurmd.com. That's B-O-N-H-E-U-R-M-D.com. To learn more about Haldi Pharmaceutical, to sign up for a consultation, give us a call at 646-650-5040 or email me at wellnesshcompound.com. So we're having a very, very powerful discussion. We talked about some of the most common mistakes that patients with, with cancer make. We talked about statistics and why it's so important to get screened for some common GI cancers. And also before the break, we touched on a very, very important topic. We talked about the BRCA gene and also vitamin D. And I always encourage my patients to go high on the vitamin D, to be in a 30 to 100 range. But what's interesting, we talked about that too high may be also inappropriate. And we talked about levels being 30, 40 that uh, the, the, the experts on this show are recommending. Can we continue the discussion a little bit? Uh, Dr. Salazzo, are you firm on 30 and 40? Is that your final recommendation? Well, you know, that in general, yes. Um, if you have a cancer, depending on which type, you might want to go higher. Uh, for instance, prostate cancer, vitamin D is huge. Colon cancer, uh, according to that Harvard uh, uh, lecture. Uh, but, I, you know, let's embellish this idea of supplements and some mistakes. Uh, I think you're going to like this. So I had a patient, I have a patient, he is really into health supplements and he reads and reads and he comes in with a page and a half of supplements, some of which he's taking three or four times a day. And there's so much overlap, so much antioxidant. And I, I ask him, I'm trying to thin it out for him. Plus, I don't think it's good. Mm-hmm. And he gets hurt and offended. Well, you know, I read this, I read that. And in my heart of hearts, I knew this was not good. In fact, I have two books behind me, well-referenced. Antioxidants, too much can cause cancer. And it makes sense. And it's well-referenced. So he wouldn't listen to me. Make a long story short, he comes back into the office, and now he has prostate cancer. And he looks at me and says, Doc, do you think I might have caused this with all the things I take? I didn't have the heart to say, yeah, I didn't. But in reality, yes. When you study the bo- one of the body's defenses 
is actually creating oxidants to kill cancer because cancer cells lack catalase. In fact, that's how radiation kills cancer, it creates free radicals. So overdoing anything is bad. The best vitamin is your diet, a healthy diet, uh, lots of vegetables, some fruit, no processed food, low sugar, and, you know, there's exercise too. All these things have been shown to decrease cancer. In fact, on the uh, National Cancer Institute website, it says up to more than 35% of cancers can be related to diet, and that's true. And let's look at, like we mentioned, lung cancer is the most common uh, deadly cancer, right? That's smoking for the most part, and people are smoking. That's insane. So that's preventable. Thank you. And like we talked about, too much sun, the dark side of the sun, melanoma, right? So there's lots of preventable cancers. And uh, I, I think that a balanced lifestyle is extremely important. But getting the colonoscopies, endoscopy, uh, PSAs, well, you could argue that. And, but being preventative, going to your doctor regularly, and, and trying to live a healthy life is huge. I agree completely. Do you agree with the vitamin D recommendation? You know, I don't know that I had a specific range. I knew that sufficient vitamin D was very important. I believe that. I take it myself. I I always check in my patients. Um, I know what the lab range is on the results. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know that I had, you know, I I don't, it's very infrequent that I'll actually find anybody um, even on supplementation, which is remarkable, and even in the summertime, right, right. who has a very elevated vitamin D, it, it's extremely unusual that I'll see that, quite honestly. Um, but, you know, I don't titrate them to a range. I just supplement them, and usually with a supplement, we get them above 30, which is usually where I want them. Wow, this is so important. I, I'm a big supporter of vitamin D levels, but I've always encouraged my patients to go on a higher end of the range. But the discussion here will 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 sort of encourage me to look at the data and to see is to is higher range not as good as we want it to be. I, I think something Dr. Salazzo said, which is just so incredibly important, that I, I I just I emphasize the same thing to my patients, and I've seen it in other ways, maybe not as specifically with respect to cancer or the effects of overdoing antioxidants, but with respect to liver disease and liver damage, I get the same thing. I have patients that come on, that come in with very long list of supplements that they're taking and it makes me uncomfortable. And I, you know, sometimes I can speak to what some of the supplements are. And sometimes I don't even really know what all of them are. They'll bring supplements with them and they may not even have any kind of indication as to exactly what they are. They're sometimes made by homeopaths or acupuncturists that put together something and I remember, and, and I, don't, I, I don't think that's necessary. I agree 100% that the best supplement, the best, the best medication, really, the best way to help keep yourself healthy is with your diet and with exercise and with healthy lifestyle choices. I remember a case, it wasn't specifically about cancer, but I remember in, within the context of my GI fellowship, I had to do a, a rotation in transplant hepatology. And I did that rotation. It was a few months at NYU in the transplant center there. And we had a young guy come in, I don't know, maybe in his 30s or 40s. It was many years ago. And he was in fulminant hepatic failure. We couldn't figure out why. Um, his family brought him in. And he, he was, uh, you know, in very bad shape and ultimately required a liver transplant. He did not have viral hepatitis. 
he wasn't a known alcoholic. We couldn't find a reason. Um, he hadn't overdosed on any medication. There was no acetaminophen levels. And the long and the short of it is he, he underwent a liver transplant. He was a young, healthy guy. And we never really fully understood why his liver failed. And uh, while he was still in the hospital postoperatively and he was recovering, his family brought in a paper shopping bag. And inside of this paper shopping bag was just a ton of supplements. And we sat, and I remember it so clearly, and it was probably 15 or more years ago. Don Quai. What's that? Don Quai, that herb that causes liver failure. They still it, sell it. It, it could have been. I mean, we looked through this bag and we looked at each other and we said, oh gosh. And so, I mean, it could have been any, it could have been, maybe, maybe there was one in particular. And we turned to his family and we said, why was he taking all of this? <laughs> and it was to keep his prostate healthy, to keep yeah, his yeah. liver healthy, to keep A his this healthy. To, correct. And <laughs> we looked at each other uh, really, uh, you know, very sad and it was very unfortunate for him, but who can say for sure, but it really seems like he probably overdosed on supplements. So too much of a good thing is really not. Yeah. Moderation is key. And, Moderation. and it's so common these days to see supplements yeah. and, and all of these kinds of things that I think people lose track of how important it is just to eat healthfully and make healthy choices in their lives. Yeah, I could tell you first, I want to honor you for saying you, you, sometimes you look at the things on those supplements and we don't know what they are. And, and I could say the same as a pharmacist. And that takes a very dedicated and smart physician to say that because we, we are in the university of learning, as Dr. Salazzo <laughs> says, right? All of us. Always, so, um, always. It's, it's really important to be educated. If you are a patient out there who's taking a lot of supplements, you must be guided by, by an amazing practitioner who's guiding you and who's checking your blood, who's checking your liver enzymes, who's checking your renal function and other things. Uh, there was a case for, I believe, green tea extract that a gentleman took for weight loss and he ended mm -hmm. up in hepatic failure. So this is very wow. innocent. You think green tea extract, How, if you think about how harmful could it be, but yes, it can be. So you have to be guided. I cannot stress enough by an amazing practitioner and I cannot stress enough the food element and, and what, what you do to your body. We talk about epigenetics. Your environment, is driving your genes. It's very, very powerful. I had Dr. Joel Furman on the program uh, here maybe a month or two ago, and Dr. Furman is a big, uh, he's a celebrity doctor who basically promotes nutrient-rich plant-based diet. And he talked about diseases that are really nasty conditions, autoimmune conditions that are reversed on the right diet, literally reversed. Mm -hmm. So your environment, this is a very, very important to our listeners, is very, very important. So, wow, what a powerful discussion. This is really, really good. I know a lot of people are getting a ton of value out of this. Uh, Dr. Salazzo, what's the uh, crossroad of integrative medicine and oncology? How do you put the two together? Well, the first thing is my job is to get this patient out of quicksand. And, you know, I, I want to use everything possible to get them not to die. And alternative medicine has good things and some not good things. Straight medicine has good things. And sometimes the approach is not 100%. So you put them both together. And you don't get stuck on one way of doing something. Keyhole vision. Uh, so by putting both together and knowing what interferes with each other, if someone's getting radiated... Again, you don't want to use antioxidants. It's going to block the radiation. Uh, certain medicines, chemo, uh, there's interactions that the doctor has to be aware of that the patient 
should not be taking certain supplements. Uh, there are things to help buffer the side effects of chemo. There are things to help potentiate chemo. And I have so many books about biomodifiers and how to block chemo resistance. That's, that's the biggest problem is that the cancer cells don't die because they develop a mutation called MDR, multi-drug resistance. There's ways of preventing that from developing. There's ways of blocking MDR, uh, multi-drug resistance, and real quickly, multi-drug resistance, the main mechanism of action is a pumping system at the cell membrane. You give a patient chemo, and the chemo goes into the cell, and it pumps it out. It's a pumping system. So someone very smart put this together. You're going to appreciate this, being a GI. Um, Proton pump inhibitors. They inhibit gastric hydrochloric acid secretion. So when you give chemo, we give proton pump inhibitors to try to overcome MDR. We also Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. So um, I uh, – and, and I'm going to reach and get a book here or two. So also calcium channel blockers and uh, – oh, well, this is funny. It's right at my arm's reach. <laughs> uh, so preclinical, clinical modulation, anti-cancer drugs. I don't know if they can see that. We can see that. All right. And here's Under another. I mean, this is what I do in my spare time. Ha ha. Cancer <laughs> <laughs> drug resistance. Uh, for our listeners, Dr. Salazzo is showing us via video uh, books in his library. So, I mean, these are books with good studies showing – if you use certain things, you can help overcome the major obstacle, and that's resistance. I mean, everyone has had patients or friends, they have a cancer, and they, they're all happy after three months of chemo. It reduced by 50%, and then two months later, they're sad, it grew again. And then you can't stop the beast. So there's ways of modifying the response with natural things and not natural things. Uh, so that's a big plus. And um, uh, another thing I think that has hit the forefront, and that's what we call chemosensitivity testing or um, uh, molecular profiling is the new name of it, molecular profile, where we look at cancer cells at the molecular individual level. I mean, it used to be lung cancer, colon cancer, prostate, but it, it got then, this, the next generation was there's different subsets of lung cancer, small cell, non-small cell, adenocarcinoma, and on and on. And the point is, it's deeper than that, just like the BRCA gene. That is a, a molecular profile. Uh, estrogen receptor site, progesterone, HER2. So it's gotten deeper and deeper, and we call it targeted medicine, precision medicine, where we can now target the mutation and block the mutation and therefore block cancer growth. So uh, cancer treatment has evolved and evolved and it's exciting because now we're getting more meds, more drugs released much quicker. Have you noticed that doctor? You can't even keep up with this. Yes. And they give you names that you can't pronounce. It really helps. (laughs) Three names for each drug at least. But it, but it's exciting because it's getting hopeful, especially like the new immune therapy, Keytruda, Optivo, Tocentric, right? Mm-hmm. It's they save some of my patients' lives. 
And I was using those off-label for years, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so really, really good. Um, I, I really appreciate the power of integrative medicine, and when you combine it with the proven on, oncology treatments, I think you could really, really um, help someone tremendously, someone who maybe had lower chances of living, and now you're increasing it from 40 to 60 to 80 and higher. I don't that's know if there's data out there, but that's, that's the goal. That's what it's all about. Yes, yes, and, and that's, that's the front, that's the battle that uh, uh, good physicians are fighting. You're really putting your best knowledge and information that you, 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 you work on in your spare time, as you mentioned, and you're fighting for your patient's life, and this is truly, truly honorable, um, and, uh, you know, to, to work with physicians just like you, Dr. Salatsu, and uh, Dr. Benur, you, you, I know both of you are putting your whole being on the line because you research the information and you fight for your patients' well-being and life. Dr. Banur, let me go to you. When do you start screening for cancer? How often? What are the symptoms that should be a wake-up call for patients? I got mm-hmm. the eye doc. Okay. Um, so let's start with um, symptoms and then also lack of symptoms and still the, the need for colorectal cancer screening. Um, so generally speaking, it used to be that the, re- that the national recommendations were that everybody, irrespective of symptoms or family history, would start at 50. Um, that's now been changed and it's been lowered to 45 because of the increase that we've seen in colon cancers in people in their 40s. Um, so they've lowered the screening guidelines now to start in the general population to 45 years old. Um, but when you set aside for a moment, and we can come back to that, the um, just the, the, the general screening guidelines for colorectal cancer, plenty of people may require a colonoscopy independently of just their age. And some of the symptoms that we look for and the symptoms that might make somebody think that it's at least worth considering or seeing a doctor for would be if there's a change in bowel habits. Um, that's always very important. And not, not only that, it's also in between colonoscopies. Uh, if at any point a person starts to develop symptoms that might be of concern, it has to be brought to the attention of their doctor. So a change in bowel habits, um, constipation, certainly a, 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 a noticeable change, not a person who's been constipated for their whole life and they're still mm-hmm. constipated and it just bothers them. Yes. But constipation, it's a change in their, from their normal bowel pattern, um, a change in the caliber of their stool. So more narrow caliber stools are, are often concerning. Um, uh, even diarrhea can be concerning if it's a change. It would, be a, it would certainly be a, a, a consideration for an examination. Um, besides only for colon cancer, there are other reasons for diarrhea. But diarrhea in and of itself can sometimes be overflow. You can have an obstruction of stool because there's a cancer. And then what a person is passing is just mm. looser stool around it that can't get through um, because the other stool can't get through. So diarrhea, change in bowel, have its constipation, narrow caliber stools that last for more than a few days. The feeling that a patient might describe that they have to have a bowel movement, mm-hmm. and when they actually have a bowel movement, they either have a sense of an incomplete evacuation or they don't feel relieved after they've moved their bowels, suggesting that, in fact, maybe it hasn't been a complete evacuation and there can be an obstruction. Uh, you know, needless to say, rectal bleeding is probably one of the most important symptoms um, that a patient can have that might warrant a colonoscopy or certainly attention from their physician. Uh, Rectal bleeding is very important. And rectal bleeding um, is, believe it or not, so often uh, overlooked or misunderstood because patients may attribute their rectal bleeding to hemorrhoids or something Mm -hmm. 
very innocuous. And they say, oh, these are the hemorrhoids I've had for the past 15 years. And, and so months may go by before they bring it, you know, before they, before they mention it to their doctor or go to look into it further. And while rectal bleeding certainly can be a symptom of probably one of the simplest things that I treat, which is a hemorrhoid, um, it is also the symptom of one of the most uh, concerning conditions that I treat, which is yeah. uh, colon or rectal or even anal cancer. Um, blood on the stool, um, so not only rectal bleeding, but blood on the stool or certainly blood mixed in with the stool, abdominal pain, um, unintended weight loss, which is certainly a symptom that's concerning for any type of cancer, really, or just in general, uh, weight loss that a patient can't explain, uh, weakness, fatigue, iron deficiency, anemia, usually um, uh, raises a red flag and, and we're concerned, whether it's for colorectal cancer or for a, ca- a cancer anywhere within the GI tract, uh, right. esophageal, gastric, um, there could be some, some degree of occult bleeding. Um, so now the problem is that when colorectal cancer um, is responsible for one of these symptoms that I've mentioned, um, it usually is only after the cancer has grown to a point where it's large enough and troublesome enough to have become symptomatic. And so we don't like to wait for patients to have symptoms in order to initiate screening for colorectal cancer. Um, It is so much better, so much better to be able to diagnose colon cancer when it's at an early stage. Um, You know, not just because it's nicer, but statistically, it's it's tremendously advantageous to the patient. Um, If you find colon cancer at an early stage, at stage one, the five-year survival is about 90%. So if you huge. find it's huge, it's resectable. And if it hasn't spread, oftentimes the patient doesn't even need chemotherapy. Mm. Um, if you find colon cancer um, that's got some local extension, maybe some lymph nodes nearby or it's gone through the wall, um, five years, it goes down to 71%. When you find colon cancer at stage four, which means distant spread, five-year survival, it's not exact, but it's about 14 or 15%. There's a tremendous difference between finding a colon cancer that has been there, that has, be, that has been there long enough to create symptoms, that has been there long enough to potentially spread in terms of not only the patient's experience of treatment, you know, uh, what, what it might entail, but just their, their, their prognosis overall. And so we don't wait for symptoms in order to start screening for colorectal cancer. So the national recommendation now, um, setting aside any higher risk patients, higher risk patients would be patients who have a family history, uh, a significant family history of colon cancer or colon polyps, particularly in family members who are of younger age um, uh, or any other genetic predispositions, uh, other gene mutations that might predispose them to to colon cancer, Lynch syndrome, polyposis, other types of polyposis syndromes. Those patients are taken out of the categories of um, just general population screening. If you just look at the general population, we say that patients should start at 45 years old. um, And then the interval between colonoscopies is, is largely based on what we find at each colonoscopy. So if it's a totally normal colonoscopy, no polyps, a very clean prep, easy to see, um, and, and you can come out and tell the patient that they've had a normal exam. The national recommendations are 10 years to the next colonoscopy. Yeah, uh, This is very have- powerful, Dr. Bunner. I, I just want to point it out. I want listeners to get it. This is completely preventable, or at least if you catch it early, you have 90% survival rate. This is 
beyond powerful. It's preventable. Yes. You can make an appointment to a GI doc. If you want to see Dr. Bonura, go ahead and do so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's preventable, and you could increase your survival rate to 90% plus. And that yes. data is, uh, for an oncologist, I know that's, that's a dream come true. Um, yeah, it's it's very, very, very impressive. If yeah. you look at the statistics, there was something I remember, I think it was in the New York Times some years ago. And when they looked at the statistics from um, uh, going back, I, I wrote it down here, going back, you know, to the mid 1980s or so, we've 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 increased our screening capabilities. And so we've seen a, a somewhat of an increase in incidence of colon cancer, but the mortality from colon cancer has plummeted. I mean, it's gone down tremendously because we have the ability now to also remove polyps and prevent and to screen and find early. And it's such an impressive graph. We hung it in our waiting room for several years just for patients to see this yeah. curve going down because there's just there still happens to be just this this perception of a colonoscopy as being a terribly invasive, difficult, unpleasant experience. And it really isn't. And I, I, I'm actually so excited. It's not, when I, I do could a speak from the experience. You can say, you can, uh, it's, it's true. I'm, I'm uh, very excited when a patient yeah. comes in very nervous and upset about a colonoscopy because I can ease their, I can ease their nervousness at the time of the procedure. Um, I actually, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But I'm even happier afterwards when they open their eyes and they look at me and they say, that's all a colonoscopy was. And I just feel, <laughs> I, I feel so good about that. Not because, I, you know, not because of anything I particularly did, but because they've, they've had this realization now. It's not as bad. It's not Dr. as bad Bonu, as they thought it was going to be. We, our show is quickly happy. coming to an end, but I want to give you an opportunity to uh, maybe give us a 30-second answer for you and for Dr. Salatu. What do you do to prevent cancer? Uh, what are some of the things that you recommend? Top few things. 30 seconds, please go. Okay, 30 seconds. With respect to colorectal cancer, and this is, could be a whole separate topic of conversation, I still believe that, col that colonoscopy is the best screening mechanism, the best ability to prevent colon cancer. We have stool tests. There's the Cologuard now that people read about and ask me about. It's certainly better than doing nothing, but it doesn't allow us to actually prevent cancer by virtue of removing polyps the way a colonoscopy does. So I'm still an enormous supporter of the colonoscopy. I believe in it wholeheartedly. If you just look generally, I think Dr. Salazzo really touched on so many of the things that I already believe in very, very much so. But things that I believe in in terms of just prevention of cancer in general, healthy eating, a largely plant-based diet. I've been a vegetarian for 30 years. I believe in it so much. I, it's actually a very comfortable and easy way to live once you get used to it. I don't know any other way at this point. Really minimize uh, alcohol intake, um, you know, nothing excessive if at all. Exercise, good sleep healthy balance in your life and paying attention to your body, listening to your symptoms, listening to your body, paying attention to symptoms and looking into things when it's appropriate without overdoing it. Yes. Thank you so much. What a wonderful My advice. Pleasure. Dr. Salazzo, what's yeah. your take? How do you prevent cancer? Okay. So I don't know if they could see that. You can see that. <laughs> yes. Can you see that? So the, the, just like the doc said, I agree with everything she said. Earlier the better. Healthy lifestyle. I've been a vegetarian since I'm eight, and I'm older than than you. <laughs> and, um, you got I'm me. I've been since vegan. I was 15. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So leaning towards vegetarianism, I'm a vegan and trying to eat more raw food. Um, like you said, listen to your body. Don't wait till you crash to feel it. Uh, women should do with, uh, a monthly breast exam. Don't wait for your you know, once a year thing because the mammal could be negative. 
and you wait a whole year and now you're stage three, you, you feel a lump. I don't care if you had a mammogram uh, two months before. If you feel a lump, you run to the doctor. You don't wait. Get, you see your doc every year, see your gynecologist every year, do the colonoscopies, do your blood work, detailed blood work. Uh, exercise is huge. Cardiovascular and resistance have great. They decrease dementia, not just cancer, decrease diabetes, well-being, slight increase in lifespan. Yes, yes, yes. Calorie restriction wow. is the strongest thing we have to increase lifespan. Yes, resveratrol is important as well. Uh, you know, very, very important. Mini fasting is a huge thing. It was in the uh, JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, August 1st, 2016, where they took women with breast cancer. They divided a group in half. They had one group fast every day at least 13 hours, eat at 6, don't eat until 7 in the morning. 36% decreased breast cancer reoccurrence, 36%. Huge. Mini fasting is so important. Water, filter the heck out of your water. Lots of water, uh, www.watercure.com, important. You don't want to eat sugar. Sugar increases cancer. The AMA shot an, an alert to us. I don't know if you got that about three weeks ago. Sugar increases cancer. A 12-page download, New York Times, April 13, 2011, Dr. Gary Taubes. Is sugar toxic? Yes, it is. That's a great download. Keep away from sugar, processed food. Jacqueline had a great saying. If it's man-made, don't eat it. If it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> that, that, Dr. Salazar, this is so, so good. We, we have to bring you back for another show. The same goes to you, Dr. Bonner. This is Thank true. you. But unfortunately, our show is coming to an end. To, to reach Dr. Salazar, you could visit his website, Richard Salazar. MD.com and to connect with Dr. Jennifer Benur, you could reach her via her website, BenurMD.com. Ladies and gentlemen, this makes it a show. If you want to live a happier, fuller, healthier, and more fulfilled life, you need to be the CEO of your own health. You need to be guided by an amazing practitioner, but it's your life, you lead it. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, be happy and healthy. All the best. Thank you for tuning in to Prescription for Success. Be sure to join your host, Dr. Emil Haldi, next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for another edition of the program. Have a great and healthy week.